So this morning, um, I must say I'm, I'm confident in the word of God and the message, but I'm not confident in my ability to deliver it. <laughs> so please pray for me in that. Um, the topic of the message today is biblical expectations of the believer. So how do we, as a believer, um, have correct expectations? Um, if, you, uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, you can raise your hand. There's ushers in the back who can uh, give you that. I don't have a PowerPoint um, because God was working on me these last couple weeks with my expectations of <laughs> how to get ready for a sermon. So, um, so if you, you will need a Bible, um, so if you, uh, if you need one, raise your hand and they'll, they'll hand them out. Um, and then there's an insert in the bulletin that will kind of help guide this. So the question I want to start with is, where do our expectations come from? Almost all of our expectations come from personal experience. When we've done something, then we know what to expect the next time. Uh, sometimes our expectations can come from other people's experiences. So friends go somewhere or experiencing something, they tell you about it, so you can set an expectation for, for when you do that. Um, and God has given us an amazing gift with uh, the gift of our imagination. Um, because it allows us to imagine what life would be like, right? Um, to imagine what it'll be like for a ministry, for a job, for love, for family, all of these things, we, we build a concept in our imagination. The problem with that is our imagination is flawed and it's fleshly. We can't even imagine what God has in mind for us if we're willing to obey and follow him. And so with this focus, I, I want to be able to explain that the primary cause for all of our struggles and sin comes from unmet expectations that we have. This is the source of all anger and frustration bitterness and strife. We had an expectation of how something would turn out. And it didn't turn out that way. And we're responding and reacting to that. I just want to give you a minute for, for that to kind of sink in a little bit, that, that our problems are caused because we have set an expectation for something. And it didn't happen that way. Our greatest enemy in life, our greatest struggle, is of our own making. How do I respond to a situation, any situation, when it doesn't meet my expectation? When I expect the driver in front of me to like use a turnout because he's going slow. When I expect my children to obey and do what I ask. When I expect my wife to hear or respond a certain way. When I expect brothers and sisters in Christ to respond to me kindly. What happens if that doesn't take place? For me personally, when I learned that my expectations 
were the source of most of my problems. It was a major breakthrough in my, my spiritual growth. So the question that I want us to ask today is, where, do, where does that expectation we have come from? Why do I believe that this should be the outcome in any particular situation? When you think about that, what you're going to be faced with is the question, is this expectation from God or is it from me? What I found in my life is that answering this question is the most critical thing we can do. Do I expect this result because God has explained it that way in his word or because it's just the way I want it to be? So today we're going to look at developing a biblical expectation. To do this, we'll need to look at the scriptures to see what God has established for us as godly biblical expectations. God created us and he knows our tendencies. We have the tendency to use our experiences as the basis for truth. And then we build on that expectation as truth for the future. So if it happened this way, then we expect it to happen this way in the future and we expect it to always be that way. And Jesus knows this is one of our tendencies, right? That's the way he created us. But that's why I'm convinced that when Jesus healed the blind, he did it a different way every time. If he would have done it the same way, we would have had this theory on healing blindness and we would have come up with a system and formula for, because that's what we do. We use our experiences as the establishment of our expectations. But what God wants is he wants us to be dependent on him. The source of healing the blind was Jesus, not what Jesus did. A perfect example of this is the story of Joshua and Israel when they're entering the promised land. God explains the plan of defeating Jericho and conquering the promised land. He tells them what he wants to do. And so they go in and they, and they do that with Jericho. They follow God's expectations perfectly. And then they look, and the next village is a small little place called Ai, and they're like, oh, we can go get it. And so they go, and they're defeated. They lose. And they were really confused by this because God had already given his word and his expectation of what, what they were to do. Because he had already promised to give them the land. They had built their expectations on God's word and their prior experience. But what God wanted them to learn was that he wanted to be their source for everything. And because someone had committed sin in the camp, he wanted them to come to him before they went to battle so that he could reveal what the problem was. But they didn't do that. God's plan for us is to be completely obedient and dependent on him. This is the only way to enter in and to stay within the kingdom of God. Jesus gives one of his toughest lessons on this matter of complete dependence on him as the source of eternal life. So the first passage we're going to look at is in John chapter 6, verse 54. Jesus is in the middle of a discussion with the Pharisees. Uh, He's talking about being the bread of life. 
Um, he's in this, uh, this, this discussion and argument with the Pharisees. He's telling them the, you know, the Pharisees that they're rejecting him and they're rejecting God. And, um, and his <clears throat> followers and disciples are all around. Um, they're at the temple when he's, when he's doing this teaching. And in John chapter 6, verse 54, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And what happened after this was that many of his followers left. Um, they're like, this is crazy. Now, they weren't thinking he was, a, a, you know, cannibalistic. The, the idiomatic phrase eat of my flesh and drink of my blood was be fully and entirely committed to me. Do everything I ask of you, everything I tell you. Do nothing on your own. And so that teaching was too much for most of them, and they went away. In fact, we hear in one of the other uh, Gospels that he turns to his own disciples and he says, are you going to leave me now? So this was, this was an incredibly difficult teaching. Um, what Jesus was requiring from the people was total obedience and total obedience from him. This is a tremendous blow to our pride. We want to bring something to the table. We have experience. We have life experience. We have training. We have, we have something that we want to bring and offer God. We want God to take something of ours. The problem is everything we do is tainted with sin. And so for God and his kingdom, it's, it, it doesn't work. It's not worth anything in God's kingdom. And so to hear that is a blow to our pride. In our kingdom, we have value in and of ourselves. The problem is our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's kingdom. So we really have nothing to offer. So I want to look at this process and how it works. Um, so the first thing I want to look at is obedience, which we just finished our study in First Peter that um, Pastor Tim took us through, and we were discipled on how to live out the Christian life as exiles. And so I want to extend the idea and look at obedience as a role uh, in the life of the believer from what we studied in First Peter. Um, right off the bat in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by his blood. We were chosen to obey. That's what God chose us to do, to be obedient. <clears throat> as obedient children, uh, this is down in verse 14, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So again, as obedient children, we're to be holy. Again, in verse 22 of chapter 1. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. In chapter 3, there's an address to wives. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive. Same word, obedient to your own husband, 
so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In verse 6, he says, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. The thing about this writing to wives, um, it's not something that men can just dismiss because Jesus refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And so any admonition to wives actually applies to the whole church. So guys, in the same way, we need to be obedient and submissive to Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So again, the consequences of disobedience. And then in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, when Tim got to this part, he, <clears throat> he, he identified this as kind of like a summary of, of the whole book. It says, Younger men likewise be subject, again, obedient to your elders. And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So, the summary of First Peter comes down to this idea of humility, becoming humble. This is actually the key to pleasing God and operating in his kingdom. Uh, in the garden with Adam and Eve, <clears throat> there was an establishment of two kingdoms. Uh, the kingdom of God, which was in operation. God gave them everything they needed. He said, the only thing you need to do is not eat of this tree. Now, when they ate of the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it opened uh, the doorway to a second kingdom. Uh, the kingdom that, <clears throat> that is ruled by the flesh and governed by Satan. Um, that becomes the second kingdom, the kingdom of darkness that placed Satan on the throne. And that kingdom operates in direct contrast, contradiction to God's kingdom. And God's kingdom up becomes down in Satan's kingdom and left becomes right. And God tells us to bow down and humble ourselves. And Satan's kingdom says, lift yourself up, exalt yourself. So God has been calling us to humble ourselves before him from Genesis chapter 3 until now. The passage that signifies this the most and a passage that I encourage you to spend a lot of time in and, and even memorize is Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 11. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to be reading from that. Um, when I was younger, I uh, was going to a church and the pastor challenged um, my brother and I. We were being discipled. And, and this was a passage that he said that you should memorize. Memorize this passage. Um, and it's been one that I've gone back to so many times through teaching and, and, and other things. And, and I know Pastor Tim, when he does his discipleship class, um, he requires the guys to memorize this as well. Um, so, I, so I encourage that for you. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those that are in heaven, those that are on the earth, and those that are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The key to the life of Jesus is humility. He comes to earth to become like us, to save us. But to do that, he has to humble himself. It says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his Godheadness. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. His, what made him one of, the, one of the, the Trinity, his Godhead, he emptied himself of that and he came down. And he became dependent on the Godheadness of the Father so that he was in total dependence on God. Our access to the power of God to live the life of Jesus that we're called to is by the same humility that Christ had. So what did Jesus do to become humble? This was a process. He grew into humility as he grew in stature and wisdom. Remember after he was at the, at the temple, we have this time from when he was 12 to when he was 30. We don't really know, but it says that he grew in wisdom and stature. One of the things he learned was how to become humble. So how did that happen? Well, in verse 8 of Philippians 2, it says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the way to become humble is to be obedient. Why? Doesn't this make the whole thing like workspace? Like if I just obey all the rules, then I become humble? What does it mean to obey? In the Old Testament, the words humility and obedience are interchangeable in many ways, and many of the times they're translated. So what's the relationship between obedience and humility? Well, to obey someone, you have to put your opinion aside and, and do what they ask. This act of relinquishing yourself to take on what someone else determines is humility. Jesus constantly said that he was here to do the will of the Father and not his own. He was here to do God's work. So he put himself aside and he did the work of his Father. So what is the first step of obedience? Well, it's a terrible word. It's the word submission. Jesus says, eat of my body. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to submit to him in order to do that. Submission is the recognition of another's position and submitting to the rank that they represent. We see this in Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, do nothing from, selfish, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That means looking at somebody else and saying, well, they, they outrank me. Putting them above you in position. Well, I know what some of you are thinking. What if that other person's an idiot? 
Do I still have to submit if they're wrong, if they're stupid? Like, because that's where some of us draw the line. I will not submit to an idiot. Unfortunately, God doesn't qualify the statement. He doesn't say submit to them if they know what they're doing. He says regard them as more important than you. Now remember the exhortation to wives to submit to their husbands even if they're unbelievers. Why? So that they may be won over. See, the, the distinction between these two kingdoms is God's kingdom. The only access to God's kingdom is through humility. When we humble ourselves, when we submit, that act of submission opens the gates to the kingdom of God and people can see in through that. That's why God called his disciples to be humble, to love, to be self-sacrificing. Now, Jesus also warns against outward submission and inward pride and arrogance, right? It's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll do what you say, and it's going to fall apart, and it's going to end up looking, but I'll let everybody know it wasn't me, it was you, I was just obeying. Okay, that, unfortunately, that's not the submission that Jesus is talking about. So how do we avoid that? The only way we can truly submit to someone else is by comparing ourselves to Christ. See, if we're comparing ourselves to somebody else, well, we can make these judgments. When we compare ourselves to Jesus, we fall apart. Right? We become the idiot because we're not even we're nowhere without him. And so when when that's the standard, when we hold ourselves to Christ and we look at how far away we are, how much our sin has impacted us then it's easier to elevate someone else in our view. That's why Paul often refers to himself as the chiefest among sinners. Because he wasn't looking at the other people. He was looking at Jesus. And he saw that he was nothing without him. So how do we do this? Well, this is the painful part. This message is of pretty strong one, very painful one. So the way that we do this is we have to relinquish our rights. A bondservant is somebody who willingly, intentionally gives up all rights and access to those rights forever. This is really difficult for us to understand because in our country, the first response we have to everything is, well, I have my rights. And that's true. In this kingdom we do, and in our country we do. And God says, well, to be in my kingdom, you have to give up those rights. With verses like, greater, man, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for the brethren, and take up the cross and deny yourself. This is the laying down of our life that, that Jesus is talking about. See, slavery back then was much different. Back then, someone would become a slave or a servant when they'd lost everything. And they had debt that was insurmountable. They had been trying to make it, they have been trying to make it, and they keep falling greater and greater debt, and they can't get out. There's no way out. And so what they would do is they would go to the person that they owed the money to, and they would say, okay, 
I'm yours until the debt's paid off. And so they basically they would sell themselves into slavery until the debt was paid. And so you became a slave when there was nothing else you can do. You had exhausted everything that was in you to make it, and the debt was overwhelming. Now, a bondservant is very different. A bondservant is somebody who had actually paid off the debt. They had worked their way out of debt. But they look at the master and they say, you know what? You were good to me, and this is a good life. And I can't do this well on my own. And so basically he would go to the, he would go to the man and he would say, I want to be yours for the rest of my life. I'm going to give up my rights to my own life and I'm going to serve you. And they would take him to a post and they would pierce their ear and they would put in a, an earring that signified that they were a bondservant. That they chose to be in this position. Many of us claim to have done this chosen to follow Jesus. And we say that we've given up our rights and we followed him and we're now a bondservant. But how true is that? How much have we done that? How do we know where we truly stand before God with this? Well, this is where suffering comes in. Suffering reveals to us where our faith is. And what we put our faith in. <clears throat> James chapter 1. Terrible verse. says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, what does the testing of our faith accomplish? It's God showing us what we're putting our faith in. If it's our own strength, if we're putting our faith in ourselves, then it's going to fail miserably. So the fire and the suffering that comes, it comes to reveal to us what our faith is in. So the pathway to becoming a bondservant is suffering, loss, debt. And then that's where we make our decision. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to give up what's mine. How did Jesus get to this point? How did Jesus learn obedience? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says, Although he was a son, referring to Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So again, Jesus had to learn this. This was a process. Jesus learned obedience because of what he suffered. Because of the way he was treated. Because of the people around him referred to him. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, um, starting in verse 10, he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So notice, here's the process. The, how do you get to the power? It's through fellowship in his sufferings and being conformed to his death. It's about dying to self. And Paul goes on, he says, not that I've already obtained this or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of by 
laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude that if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal it to you. So how does God reveal a different attitude? We saw in Philippians, have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. Here he says the same thing. God reveals our attitude through suffering. Suffering is the pathway to maturity. Jesus was the most mature man that lived. Well, how did he get there? He learned it. And we have to learn it as well. See, God's plan for a fallen world, that's why he, suffering reveals that. Suffering is the natural result of defiance of God in sin. See, we, we have this expectation of how life is supposed to be. We're supposed to be healthy. We're supposed to be successful. We're supposed to be, our kids are supposed to grow up healthy. And we have this expectation of life in our kingdom. In our kingdom, we want our world to work this way. And so we set these expectations of this is how it's going to be. But that's not biblical. That doesn't come from God. And so how does God get us from our kingdom into focusing on his well, we have to suffer the loss of the things that we've created so that he can bring us into his reality. And so what we determine as right and wrong puts us in opposition of God's design for humanity. God's design was for the world to see him through suffering, through sacrifice, through self-sacrificing love. Why is the gospel so powerful? Because God, Jesus gave himself up. When people see that love, there's no other response. And so his people are to be the same way. In a fallen world, suffering makes it clear that we're not intended for this. We suffer the elements, we suffer sickness and disease, loss, pain, weakness, mistreatment, torture, death. This we all know is injustice. And it leads us to this difficult question of how can a loving God allow for this? Well, that's because sin has made a mess of the world. A correct understanding of suffering. Suffering brings us into a realization of God's purpose for man. Self-sacrificing love. It's what he designed us for, self-sacrifice. And he led the way as his example. Uh, if you want to turn to John chapter 15, um, we're going to read a lot because the Bible does a way better job than I do. So we'll read the Bible. <clears throat> John chapter 15. I'm the true vine. and My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
This is what he's talking about when he talks about eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. This abiding in him, making him everything. <clears throat> if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So how do we glorify God? We bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? Well, we suffer. That's where it's going. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And if I had done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Again, when Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We've built an expectation that life is going to be good and easy and, and we're we're caught by surprise. We're taken aback when, when our expectation doesn't get met. And so we're going to look at how do we respond? What is, suffering reveals to us what our faith is in. And so if we haven't got to this point now, We, we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, we've all memorized that. But 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I'm going to ask the worship team and the ushers to come forward. We're going to take communion. It's going to be quite different than we've done before. Um, at this point, we're just going to uh, we're going to pass out the bread. <clears throat> We've been focusing on what Jesus meant when he said, "Eat of my flesh," and it's a full and total commitment to him. 
it's releasing and relinquishing what we feel we have the right to, what, what we've set our expectations on. And it's saying to, to Jesus, whatever. Whatever you do, whatever you decide, whatever you call me to. <clears throat> so now that we've seen what it means to eat of his flesh, the question is, are you willing to? This is a choice taking us into maturity, which is the purpose for our lives. It's what I designed, what he designed us for. I'd like you to take the time while the bread is being passed out to seek God, to check your heart and to see where you're at. The song that we're going to be playing is I Surrender All. If you're committing to this, then sing it to the Lord as a declaration. But if you're still struggling with this level of commitment, then I'm going to ask you to make this a prayer of your heart that God will develop this in your life. And if you're unsure, if you even have a relationship or that you want this kind of relationship, then I would just ask you to use this time to seek God's face. You may even want to let the bread pass you by and just use this time for prayer. So ushers, if you could come forward. When Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples were going back to this. Eat of my flesh. Take my life on. If you're willing and ready to do this, there will be victory in this. Let's take of the bread together. Heavenly Father, God, we just so thankful for the gift that you've given us in your son. God, that he laid himself down so that we could be invited into the relationship with you that we need so desperately. God, I pray that you teach us Show us. God, we're, we're, we're in error that you would just rid us of that. And if it's suffering that you do to, to bring us to that, that, God, I just pray that, that we'd be willing to go through, knowing what the result will bring. I just thank you and praise you, God, in your holy and precious name. Amen. So that was the difficult part of the message. That's what brings us into the victory in the, in the blood. And so now let's look at the admonition that Jesus gives to drink his blood. What is the process that is used for getting the juice out of the fruit? You have to squeeze it out, right? The wine press is a visual that God uses several times to talk about judgment and suffering. This process of pulverizing the grapes so that the juice can be extracted, the valuable juice inside the fruit must be squeezed out. 
And this is exactly what God is after with his son, Jesus. The valuable blood, the sacrificial element that was needed to satisfy the wrath of God against sin, the sin of all mankind was inside Jesus. With each test that he was given, with each trial, with every persecution and false accusation, the blood of Jesus was becoming more and more valuable. Jesus was sinless in every situation, and with every victory over sin, the blood was being purified. Because that's the blood that we need, that we claim for the victory as well. That's the promise that God gives us, that we will have victory in the blood of Jesus. So now when we look at James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The question we have is, why did Jesus need to suffer? It was not a consequence of sin in his life. <clears throat> he was living in a sin-filled world, but I think God was preparing him for the ultimate suffering that he would have to endure. God was developing endurance in his own son for what we'd have to endure with the cross. He was being prepared for the cross. Now this is the proper expectation for living in the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus says, the servant is not above his master. If this was the purpose and the cause for Jesus, then we have to go into this building an expectation that it is our role as well. We just read John chapter 15, <clears throat> verses 13 and 14. It says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Again, bringing out 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the expectation of the follower of Jesus. He laid down his life, we lay down our lives. So how do we do that? <clears throat> this is how the kingdom of God works. And what marks his kingdom is not personal freedoms and rights, but it's the relinquishing of those rights, laying down our lives and picking up our cross. So what does that look like practically? Well, the next verse in John chapter 15 shows us this. Is, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Placing the needs of others above our own. This is how we die to self. John writes the most of love. He refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Some people think that's an arrogant claim by John. I happen to think that John had more of a deeper understanding than the others of what love is. In the epistle of John, in chapter 12, verses 24 to 26, he says, Truly, truly, this is Jesus talking, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the midst of suffering. He was raised in that.
So how do we do this? First, we need to know where we're at. Now, many of you know I teach middle school. <clears throat> and when I give the test to the students, it's not so I know where they're at. I'm with them every day. <laughs> I know exactly where they're at. <clears throat> the test is for them, for them to know where they stand. I'm sure you may remember going over something in class way back when or even recently. And as you're hearing the information, you're thinking, oh, this is easy. I got this. This is great. And then a week or two later, you have the test. And you're sitting there going, oh, my gosh. I remember this. I knew it. It was a... And you can't. You can't remember. You draw a blank. You know that you knew it. But now that you have to explain it and prove you know it, you can't. Well, that means you never really learned it. See, did you know that learning is a physical experience? When you learn something, it actually alters your DNA. We used to think DNA was static and it never changed, but the more we learn, we learn. That as we have deep learning and knowledge, it actually shifts and changes our DNA. And when this occurs, then we've truly learned and we're able to teach somebody else what we know. Suffering is our test to see what is truly in our DNA. When we suffer, if whining and complaining or anger or bitterness comes out, then that's what's truly in us. When God presses us, when he squeezes us with a, with a trial, when he, when he challenges us with something, if we whine and complain or make excuses or whatever it is, <clears throat> God already knows that's our heart. He's trying to show us where we're at. Are we really depending on God at the core in our spiritual DNA? If we have Jesus in us and are growing in maturity, when we're tested by fiery trials, the blood of Jesus is what comes out. We respond as Christ would respond. Remember, Jesus emptied himself of his Godheadness so that he could do this life using only what God provided him. Why did he have to do it that way? Well, he did it so that we who have no Godheadness of our own can rely on him and live the same life that Jesus did by relying on God. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 3 where Paul was talking about knowing the power of the resurrection. So how did Paul get access to that power? Well, when you go back to verse 7 of that chapter, it says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he's saying the life, the kingdom, the, the expectations that I had, all of those things that I, that I put in place for my life, none of that matters. None of it's right. It was all derived from the wrong source. But now that he sees what Jesus offers and what Jesus' plan is, he's like, that's it for me. I'm all in for that. That is what I'm after. Everything else is trash. And then he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. That's why when we read through the Bible, the, the disciples, now, when they were disciples, they were afraid of suffering. They didn't want anything to do with it. When Jesus says we're going to go down to Lazarus 
because they, they left because they were being persecuted. One of the disciples was like, oh, great, well, we'll go with you. We're going to die, so we'll go and die with you. There was, but all these same disciples, when they're apostles, when they've been filled with the Holy Spirit and they, they see Jesus resurrected and they, they fully understand the kingdom of God, when suffering comes, they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing that they got to experience the suffering of Christ. It's a major shift in them. Paul says that knowing God, he has learned. There's been a change in his DNA as a result of Jesus. If you look at the list of the things Paul suffered, shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and floggings, imprisonment, how did he respond? With complaining and anger? No. With love. So how do we develop godly biblical expectations? Well, first, we can't be surprised by suffering. Most Christians, when presented with a situation that's difficult, they're taken by surprise. They immediately respond by asking God to eliminate the problem. God, take this from me. They go to God and plead with him to make it stop. Now, here's a scary thing about pleading with God. Sometimes he'll listen to our cry. And as a result, we stay immature. There are a few places in the scripture where the people are reprimanded for still drinking milk when they should be eating meat. God's directing them to grow in maturity, but they refuse to grow up. So we know that this happens. That he brings suffering into our lives to grow us, to mature us, to bring us into his kingdom more fully. And we say, no, no, I don't want it. I'm not ready. And we don't grow. God was directing them to grow in maturity and they refused to grow up. This is the dangerous thing about spiritual maturity versus physical maturity. We can't stop the growing process physically. Kids are going to grow up. They're going to look like adults. But we can stop the growing process spiritually. We can stay spiritual infants. How do we know where we're at? It's how we respond to suffering in it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it says, And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not fleshly. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm Paul, and one says, I'm of Apollos, and one says... That's the evidence of their immaturity. Now this message is tough. This is a, definitely a meat message. But our response to this can be that we ignore it. The purpose of Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross was not just to save us. Salvation is just the beginning of the process. His sacrificial blood was pressed out and applied to us to give us the power to live the life of Jesus. The seed falling to the ground produced fruit. We're to produce fruit, not growing in maturity, to grow into maturity, to teach others as a result of our own learning. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of this in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. 
were afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For he who live, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Jesus was victorious because of the suffering. And we, the passage we just read, the victory comes when we suffer with Christ. We will be victorious through suffering because Jesus is in us. Again, we see this in the life of the disciples. When they get beaten and whipped and thrown in prison, they rejoice and they sing for joy because they know what that's resulting. They know that there was something in their life that, they, that was holding them back, that was keeping them immature. And the suffering and the beating rid them of that whether it was a fear of suffering, whether it was the fear of authority, whether it was being rejected by men, those, those were their expectations that were holding them back. And through the suffering, after that happened, they realized, I've just been freed from that. The suffering that they went through freed them from the sin that was holding them back. And we need to be able to do that same thing. I'm going to ask the worship team and the ushers to come forward again. and We're going to take the the juice together is Jesus says that this is my blood spilled for you. I want us to focus as we do this on the promise of Jesus that he provides the power to overcome the world by his blood. So this is the, the victory. The victory is in the blood. And so as you have it in your hand and you're thinking about that, just please focus on that. This is his blood poured out for us. This is the source of the victory in this life over sin. Let's see. Heavenly Father God, I'm so thankful for, for the gift of your son and the suffering and the the example he is to us. And I pray for for you to reveal to us where we're at, what we need from you. God, I thank you for offering access to you and for the knowledge of what it is we're supposed to expect and how we're to respond. Pray that you give us the strength. In your name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so what does a biblical expectation look like? We should expect suffering in our lives and eagerly anticipate it, knowing that all suffering leads us to being more like Jesus. When suffering comes, we should not ask God to remove it from us. Rather, we should pray that God gives us the strength to endure and the peace that passes understanding to reign, in, to reign and rule in us. We should seek accountability relationships that will reveal to us where we really stand when we are suffering. Are we whining and complaining? And is somebody going to tell us to grow up in love? 
when God does show us how we fail the test? Are we willing to study harder and show ourselves approved and worthy for a retake? Suffering should encourage us and mark us as true followers of Jesus. So if you're not currently suffering, I would ask, why not? You're either not a true follower of Jesus or you're praying you're suffering away and not growing. Either way, we need to correct that. Just remember what Jesus says in John 15, 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So I just pray that we can have godly expectations and we can rely on one another when they come.